It's time for your NBA fix. This is the Big Show Daily Assist. Featuring all the latest news and insight on the association. Now joining the Big Show. Senior NBA writer for Sports Illustrated, Chris Mannix. On 97.5, 1280 The Zone in the Zone Sports Network. Chris, happy Monday. How are you today, sir? What's going on, guys? Hey, just excited to talk a little NBA basketball, talk a little bit about the Utah Jazz. They had a tough loss last night to the to the Warriors, and uh, they, they've lost their defensive edge a little bit. Chris, can you talk about ebbs and flows to your uh, NBA season and maybe talk Jazz fans off the ledge a little bit? Well, they, they certainly happen. And, I mean, look, I living in Boston, I was witness to one – you know, in the month before the All-Star break, where you had a Celtics team whose defensive intensity collapsed, its willingness to share the ball stopped. And, I mean, look, the, you heard in Boston calls for the firings of Brad Stevens and Danny Ainge. That's how, how aggressive it was getting. Um, but the Celtics have righted the ship since then. They got Marcus Smart back, and they're back in, in a good position. When, when I watched the Jazz post-All-Star break, it – you know, it frankly feels like they're still on it. Like it's just they're they're just not playing with the kind of energy and effort that I saw for most of the first half of the season. Now, nothing I've seen is you know hammer the you know alarm button and you know panic at this point. But you you just gotta wake up in a way and you know realize that your record is meaningless against teams that are kind of coming for your throat now. I mean, this is what happens when you are a established team like the Jazz have been in the first half. Teams are going to give you their best effort every single night. And you know, I think you saw that, especially from Golden State, in the game the other night. And uh, to, to, you know, to, to put it bluntly, you've got to match their intensity and match their effort. And we haven't seen that from Utah in the games since the All-Star break. Yeah, exactly right, Chris. Some teams seems like when they're when they're hitting their shots at the offensive end, they play better defense at the other end. But with this Jazz team, it's my opinion, and Jake, I don't know whether you agree with me on it or not. But when they play good defense, I'm telling you, Chris, it opens things up at the offensive end. And against Golden State yesterday, they you know they they allowed their opponent to shoot 56 percent, and they were down in the low 40s, and so it, it just when the defense isn't there, the offense lags. Well, yeah, and that's true for multiple reasons. Um, you know, one, it's easier to get easy offense when you're not taking the ball out of the basket at every time on the defensive end. That's for yeah. starters. <laughs> and there is kind of a natural confidence that comes from teams, especially young teams, when they're getting defensive stops. You can get out in transition, get easy opportunities that are going to help your your confidence grow from from game to game or quarter to quarter. Uh, and that's a big part of it. When you're constantly, you know, just walking the ball up the floor, uh, it, it makes it challenging. You know, the Jazz aren't some, you know, high octane transition team, but you know, they, they get the easy opportunities. They've got a mobile big man in Rudy Gobert. I mean, they've they've been able to do some stuff this year. Uh, it, it's it's disheartening when you're not getting any kind of stops. So that's, I mean, that's priority one, two, and three. If you're Quinn Snyder, you're not worried at all about you know what the offense is doing. The offense is fine at least from what I've seen from the, the games I've seen, the two games I've seen from the Jazz. Um, it's just defensively, you've just, you just got to move. you got to get out. you got to defend three-point line. Um, you got to execute in these pick-and-roll defensive sets. I mean, just all the things the Jazz were good at in the first half of the season, they've got to get back to right away. 
Chris, I want to ask you about Donovan Mitchell on the defensive side of the ball. And, and Gordon and I have talked about this a lot. And actually, when the Jazz drafted him initially, they were hoping he could make a, a defensive impact right away. And we've seen what he's been able to do offensively, and he's emerged certainly as a star. But do you think Donovan Mitchell has more in the tank defensively? Do you think he, he can become a two-way player? Yeah, I mean, I don't think he'll ever be an elite two-way player in the way that Giannis is a great two-way player. LeBron, when he activates it, is a great two-way player. But there's only a handful of those guys in the league. I think that Mitchell can be better than average defensively. And I think in the fourth quarter of games, he's got the athleticism and the skill set to be able to ranch it up and ratchet it up a notch or two and and get and help that team get stops uh, late in games. I don't think he's a liability by any stretch or even a below-average defensive player. I just When you're talking about the great two-way players, you can see greatness in them. Like LeBron, when he decides he doesn't want you to score on him, you're probably not scoring on him. Giannis can be the same way at basically five positions. Klay Thompson even was like that at his best. Uh, I don't think Mitchell is necessarily going to get on that level, but I do think he'll be good enough defensively that in the fourth quarter you don't have to worry about him. But he can take a challenge like, say, a Jamal Murray, like we saw in the bubble or others, and, and succeed at it at times. So I think, I think there's more to come with that, with Donovan Mitchell. I just would temper some expectations about just how, how, how good he can be on that end of the floor. The Jazz's other star against Golden State, uh, Chris, Rudy Gobert, 24 points, 28 boards, and four blocks. How do you think – is Rudy viewed the way he really is now around the league? Does everybody understand how important this guy is? Or do, do, do some people look at it and say, yeah, Rudy, he's good at the defensive end, yeah, but? No, I, I think it's more the latter still, at least from the more casual fans. And it's funny, I had this argument with Dan Patrick just last week where I was telling him, like, I think Rudy Gobert can finish the top five an MVP, and he kind of scoffed at it in a way because, you know, the you know, Rudy does have this reputation as being a great defensive player and, you know, not necessarily as impactful on the offensive end. But you've seen out there how impactful he is at the offensive end. He is uh, a very good low post player. He is an excellent roller, an offensive rebounder. And, you know, I, we talked about this, but, like, his screen setting, that sort of screen assist, better than any player in the league at this point, and that's that's enormously valuable to, to any team's offensive production. So I, I think people need to stop looking at Rudy as being this Ben Wallace-type player, like a guy that just is great defensively but is just kind of there offensively. He is He's probably never going to match and is never going to match what he does defensively on the offensive end, but he has closed the gap considerably in recent years with, with, how, with all the, the diversity of things he can do offensively. Chris, in the Western Conference in the second half of the year uh, here, who do you think is capable of more? Who's uh, capable of going on a run maybe we didn't see coming? Uh, I mean, the, well, obviously the Lakers, when they get, get all their guys back, I mean, that's, that goes without saying. Right now they're just treading water until they can get you know, Anthony Davis and Dennis Schroeder being back is, is obviously been huge for them as well. Um, I mean, there are teams bunched up in the middle – that any one of them can go on a tear. I mean, Portland is about to get some serious firepower back. I mean, C.J. McCollum is headed back to the lineup. Yusuf Nurkic is headed back to the lineup. These are high-level players. They're going to get back, and they've been pretty good without them. I mean, Denver 
is probably just, you know, uh, they played well going to the break with Michael Porter Jr. Uh, if they can get stuck in some of their guys back, and they will, uh, they're going to be, be really tough. So I think, in, look, you throw Dallas in that mix as well. I mean, the Mavericks have as much firepower as anybody in the bottom half of the playoff bracket. So you've got some teams down there that I think can go on a run. And, look, you know, Utah right now is, is relatively comfortably ahead at, at, in the top spot, but, you know, there's only, what, like four and a half games that or five games that separate – you know, two from eight, and that can change really quickly. So I, I think there's a lot of room for maneuvering from those teams in the middle part of the bracket because for health reasons and, you know, just getting guys going reasons, they can be really good. Chris, do you think any of the teams, speaking of going on runs, how about for the postseason? Could any could the bottom four in the West challenge the top four? Uh, absolutely. I don't know if the bottom – two necessarily can or maybe in the bottom one and whether it's san antonio or i guess if golden state squeaks its way in there you never count out steph curry but that's a different team obviously without clay uh but i mean if, if denver portland and dallas are in the five six and seven spot like they can beat anybody they have beaten anybody i mean portland to me is 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 one of those teams that's that's going to be you know people a lot of, a lot of people are going to be sleeping on this year um i think the, the way lillard's playing is probably the best basketball of his career. And McCollum, if you remember, before he got hurt, he was playing some of the best basketball of his career. And uh, they've, they've maintained some flexibility in Portland, either to make a deal or to be a player on the buyout market. So I think something else is coming their way before the end of this season. So the Blazers, to me, uh, because we've seen them do it before. When Lillard and McCollum get hot, they've gone to a Western Conference final. I think those are the team, that's the team to watch mostly uh, that might be lurking in the weeds that we're not talking about. Chris, uh, I ask you this because you're close to that uh, Boston team and the Celtics uh, organization, but what did you make of the rumors that uh, came out about Brad Stevens perhaps going to Indiana? I mean, can we stop with, with that? With, like It's like every two years there's a Brad Stevens back-to-college rumor. E- even if we're not talking about Brad Stevens, there is, with, with very few exceptions, there's no coach that coaches in the NBA that voluntarily goes back to college. You go back to college when the NBA doesn't want you anymore. Like Rick Pitino would love to be in the NBA. John Calipari would love to be in the NBA. Fred Hoiberg would love to be back in the NBA. These guys went to college and are making good money and are having levels of success, but they would trade all of it in a heartbeat to get back into the NBA. When you experience the NBA lifestyle, the private jets, the money, not having to recruit as often as these guys have to recruit. Nobody wants to go back to that, like ever. And Brad Stevens is on very solid footing in Boston. He's got a multi-year contract. He makes a lot of money. The idea that he would go back to college basketball is ludicrous. And, you know, if you ever ask him this privately, he'll say the same thing and ask any coach. I mean, look, Quinn Snyder, ask him. Next time you have a chance to talk to him, be like, would you ever go back to college, like, under any circumstances? And, it would have to be if all 30 NBA teams told them to kick rocks and you can't, you can't coach our team anymore because that's the only way these coaches go back to the college ranks. Chris, I remember that reminds me, back in the day, someone asked Chuck Daly about the difference between coaching in the NBA and coaching college basketball. And uh, uh, I don't think he, uh, he was leaving out the recruiting part of it, but he said the coaching part of it is much more challenging in the NBA than it is in college. And I remember he said it so emphatically that 
when Dean Smith saw him, he went up to Chuck and he said, Chuck, you were kind of rough on us. And, and Chuck said, no, I meant every word of it. <laughs> what do well, you think of it, that assessment? It's true. Like, with all due respect to the great college basketball minds, you don't need to be a good coach to win championships in college basketball. You don't. Look, John Calipari is a remarkable college figure, one of the most successful college coaches of this generation. But he is not a great X's and O's coach. I mean, he's the guy that in Jersey, like, once sent four guys out on the floor. Like, you know, he's just <laughs> – he's not that, – that's not his – that's not his best asset. His best asset is recruiting and player development. He is excellent at both those things. I talk to NBA executives all the time. They love drafting guys out of Kentucky because even if it's just for one year, they know they're getting great player development from John Calipari. But you don't need to be a great coach to coach in college basketball and to succeed in college basketball. You have to basically be what Cal is, a great recruiter and a great player development guy. And, I, I mean, you, you, drive, you ride buses in college, guys. Like you ride buses and you don't take, you know, marquee private jets. You don't have the lifestyle with the, the catering that these coaches used to. Like, you might think that's small potatoes, but not to them. Like, P.J. Carlissimo is a great example of this. Like, P.J. Carlissimo probably could have had a – dozen college jobs over the last 10 years he ain't going back because he got to taste the nba life and the next coaching job pj carlissimo takes it's probably going to be back in the nba ranks he is not going back to college basketball chris mannix is with us here on the big show 97.5 and 1280 the zone chris what kind of all or uh, excuse me trade deadline do you think we're headed for are we going to see a lot of action well i think there'll be a lot of attempts at action but you know Part of the problem is, and I think we've talked about this before, is that with the play-in tournament, you know, accepting 10 teams per conference, it puts a lot of teams in the mix. I mean, you look at the Eastern Conference, I mean, theoretically, 14 of the 15 teams are in the playoff mix. Look at the Western Conference, it's more like 12, maybe 13, if you want to throw Sacramento into that mix, and uh, yeah, maybe they can turn on the Jets in the second half. So with that in mind... I don't think you're going to see as many teams look to dismantle their roster. Orlando is interesting because they're pretty much looking at a youth movement, so maybe an all-star like Vucevic and certainly Aaron Gordon could be available. Uh, Al Horford is certainly available in Oklahoma City. You know, Harrison Barnes is available. J.J. Redick is available. These are good players, different, potentially difference-making players, um, but that might be all of it. That, that's out there. I don't know if there's a more substantial deal than the names I mentioned before the trade deadline. In fact, most of the teams I've been talking to, and I'm going to write a little bit about all this tomorrow, are eyeing the post-trade deadline, the buyout market, to see if LaMarcus Aldridge hits it, if Aaron, Andre Drummond hits it, um, and a handful of other guys that could wind up you know, being unrestricted free agents you know, come early April. Uh, that That is more interesting to some of the teams I've talked to than – than what's happening at the trade deadline. Chris, going back to the Celtics again, there are I've seen those rumors out there that Danny Ainge could be active, but uh, are you buying any of that, or what are you looking at there? I mean, that's, that's basically like a cut and paste from the last three years, like Danny Ainge <laughs> aggressively pursuing player X. I mean, it, it was Anthony Davis. It was Kawhi Leonard. It was, I mean, you go down the list. If the Celtics have been involved in more talks, I think, than any team in the league because – but they've had assets. They've had a lot of young players, draft picks over the years. So, you know, they are in a position to participate. 
the question is going to be, will they use that big trade exception? They've got the biggest trade exception in NBA history. It's $20.5 million. Uh, you can get something with that. You can fit a player into that and only have to give back draft picks in return. That's appealing to, to teams across the league. But it's also something they can use uh, in the offseason as well. There's some significant chatter in that front office about using it uh, in the offseason. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's pressure on them because the Celtics right now are not a championship team. Uh, if you add a Harrison Barnes, if you add a Jeremy Grant, if you add even a LaMarcus Aldridge, you certainly push yourself closer to that goal. So uh, they're probably the team most interesting to watch over the next few weeks because of the assets and the exception that they have. Chris, as always, we appreciate you taking a few minutes. for. Yeah, go ahead, Gordon. Can I sneak one boxing item in to to Chris? I, 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 I watched the other day that legendary round between Marvin Hagler and uh, Thomas Hearns. Mm. Uh, man, I'd say some people think that was the best round ever in boxing history. I watched it again, and it was dynamite. Man, it was, it was, that was probably before your time, but you've obviously seen that fight. Oh, it was, it was something. The first round was, I think, the best round in boxing history, as you said. Um, the entire fight was a war. It was called the best eight minutes in boxing history. I mean, they just went toe-to-toe for the better part of three rounds with Hagler finally landing that right hand that caused Hearns to stumble and eventually knocking him out cold. It was it was remarkable. And look, I, Marvin Hagler grew up in Massachusetts. I mean, he's basically an icon in this state. I know Bob Ryan, the great writer for the Boston Globe, he tweeted out recently that Hagler, for a long time, was basically this town's fifth sports franchise. Like, he was that big a figure uh, in Boston. He was part of some incredible fights over the years. And one of the rare boxers, guys, that walked away when he didn't have to. Like, he retired after that fight against Sugar Ray Leonard in 1987 and passed on every offer to come back. I mean, I this weekend I called... Ray Leonard, and I called Bob Arum, and I was asking them, I was talking to them about, you know, why there was no rematch that fight. They were like, Hagler wouldn't do it. You know, Ray was like, I'm willing to do it. We could have made, you know, $15, $20 million each for a fight like that. And Hagler, because he was so pissed off at the way the judges scored the first fight, wanted nothing to do with it. Arum, he told me a story about how a year after that first fight, the Hagler-Sugar-Ray Leonard fight, all three of them were in Las Vegas, and Leonard walks up to Aram and goes, Bob, go tell Marvin, who, had, who Aram had promoted Hagler over the years, go tell Marvin, please, take this fight. We can make a fortune. So Aram goes over there, lays it all out. Hagler just turns to Aram and goes, go tell Ray to get a life. Like, that was it. <laughs> that was his only answer, and he was done. He moved to Italy. He became an action star in movies, which is a story in and of itself, and he walked away from boxing when he wanted to. If you're a fighter you should look at Marvin Hagler as an example. Marvin Hagler and Larry Holmes, the two fighters of the 1980s who saved every nickel that they earned and were able to walk away with their, with their, uh, with their faculties intact and, and do it their way. I mean, Hagler, there are plenty of reasons to respect Marvin Hagler, and if you don't know enough about him, go watch the, the, what we're talking about, the Hearns fight. Go watch the Leonard fight. Go watch the John Mugabe fight, which was a war right before he fought Ray Leonard. Uh, he was arguably the greatest middleweight in boxing history who was involved in some of the best fights of the 1980s.
And obviously he passed away two days ago, way too early at 66. Do we know how what happened there, Chris? No, he was having chest pains, I know, from talking to a family member. I don't know any more than that. We, his wife, Kay, good, good on her, came out on social media and just doused these Internet rumors that it was due to the COVID-19 vaccine. Like Tommy Hearns tweeted that or put it on Facebook or something and said he had an adverse reaction to COVID-19. That just seemed... That seemed crazy. And, you know, Kay Hagler, who was his wife for decades, uh, I believe they met over in Italy, and they were in New Hampshire at the time when Hagler passed away. She said it had nothing to do with the COVID-19 vaccine. So I'm glad that that she came out and said that because, you know, when, when a figure like Marvin Hagler passes away and people start attaching the vaccine to it, that's just – that might give some people a reason not to get it. And as we know, we need as many people to get it as possible. Here, here, here on that. Yeah. Hey, Chris, thank you very much as always. We'll catch you next week. You got it, guys. That's our friend Chris Mannix, senior NBA writer for Sports Illustrated, jumping on with us as he does each and every Monday. Jake, you know, uh, when you're done when you're done with your radio career here, I, I think maybe you should move to Italy and get into action films. I don't know, Gordon. You know, like I don't know uh, like the Marvelous One did. That's what he did. And I, I think you might have a future in that. I don't I don't think you're right. You know, no. you've given a lot of good advice over the years, Gordon, but I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is it. Uh, it's nice to hear about a, uh, a sports figure. And, and th- do you remember Marvin Hagler at all? Does that, uh, it was a little before my high, my time, but of course okay. I'm aware of him and the, and the fight you're talking about. Yeah. What a great fighter. And just like Chris said, for him to have taken care of, uh, his, uh, business on and off, uh, the, out of the ring. Uh, financially and in other ways, uh, kind of a nice, a nice uh, way to go about your business. But uh, passing way too young, sixty-six years old. Man. Yeah, I'm telling you, if it were me, I would have blown every nickel before I made it. <laughs> you think uh, what? Wine and women? Uh, what? Uh, all of the above. I would have fought until I was seventy-five. You're like I gotta get back some that guys do. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All right. We'll have more big show coming up next. 97.5 and 1280 the zone.